All right. Uh, do you uh, you want to do a uh, you want to do a show? Yeah. Why don't we do a show? Oh, that's great. Uh, I'm not muffled or anything, right? A, another uh, another uh, pandemic uh, laptop live streaming whatever the hell we want. Welcome to Hollywood and uh, there there. I'm just gonna get out of that. Welcome to Hollywood, the world that I live in. Yes. Uh, welcome to Hollywood Anonymous. I'm Brian Irwin. I'm John Huck. And I think I think uh, last week's episode uh, or last episode sounded good. We didn't have any problems with that with Kate. No, and not at all. I mean, we were fortunate I, enough. Um, our previous guest, John Michaels, who uh, who does sound, he helped us out with the with the with the Gorin one because he was able to do some stuff. And oh, really? Yeah. I mean, we're in the again, and you know this. We're in the Wild West, man. Right? Like this this world that you know we're trying to like navigate um is con- every day for me anyway because i'm a you know i like technology without really you know having ever studied it it's just trying to figure things out one day at a time you know it's either tech it's either i spend all my time with technology or uh you know live streaming i think i told you before like i'm all about the bosch right now like is that's a show that i ignored for years so once I was done with like the Rockford Files and I didn't want to pay for Starskin Hutch. You basically got a 2000, like, you got a 2020 Rock, Rockford Files. I kind of. I mean, in some respects, he's, yeah. he doesn't get beat up as much, but. Um, but you know. Because that's not, because that's not the thing anymore. Well, no, now the thing is, you know, everybody's always being almost assassinated. That would be the new being punched. Oh, is that that's, 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 thing. Bo- that's Bosch's yeah. getting beat up for Rock, Jim Rockford? Yeah, instead it's, it's about being assassinated. And, and the thing is, I started watching The Last Dance, and then oh. my oldest son was like, well, I want to watch it with you. But yes. the problem I have in my household is my family loves telling me how they want to watch things with me. And then they always postpone it. So basically, I never get around. I I don't watch anything because I'm waiting for them to join yeah, me. And so I think at some point I realized to me. I realized that I'm getting too far behind on the last dance, and people are going to start wrecking it for me. I tried to um, I tried to do that once where I watched a Game of Thrones without Nicole, and then I tried to pretend like I didn't watch it. And then okay. she's like, "Well, it looks like it was watched on the because the HBO shows you that you watched it." Yes. And I'm like. I don't know. Like it was like I was, you know, hiding pornography or something, and and finally, like halfway through, I was like, I've seen it. I've seen. It. I watched it the other day. I'm sorry. And then you know, and then I never did that again. Like because the buildup inside was too much for me. It was, oh my it god, that is so true. Isn't that weird? Like I didn't. The, the reason why I don't is because I've had this come up. Like, hey, it says we want to watch it again. I don't remember anybody in the house. What? And then you who here? And you're like, Ooh, I don't know. Um, yeah, that's weird. It must be. You know, we're all sharing. We're all sharing our passwords with family. It must have been family. It's totally somebody else. I don't. Or oh, we got hacked. Or we got hacked. It wasn't me. <laughs> we got hacked. And we got hacked. And they didn't take any of our credit card numbers. They just watched this one half hour of television <laughs> and then put the account back. And then it's a hacking. We got hacked. I mean, it, it's weird. Hacking. They're watching all the stuff I told you guys I wasn't going to watch without you. I don't know. It's I don't crazy. know what the attackers are doing. Well, <laughs> you guys watch the shows now. That's funny. Um, that last dance, though, I'm glad your kid wants to watch it. Uh, I, I I know I keep saying this, but I cannot, for the life of me, figure out how that chunk of my life has been blocked out for so long. Like, I'm. Well, I think yeah. I've got a few. <laughs> but maybe a few. A Nicole, few substan- there may be a few substances that may have been involved, but that's fine. Continue. But Nicole said she even said she goes. I've 
known you since 2013. We've been married since 2016. We've spent this quarantine every day together. You know what I mean? There's no, we've been together. We know each other pretty well. She's like, you've never once mentioned basketball. Not that you liked it, not anything. And now with this thing on, I'm sitting up on the couch going, yeah, fuck Isaiah Thomas. And she's like, you hate Isaiah Thomas? I go, dude, I hate that whole fucking team. Bill Lambier, Isaiah Thomas. I hated Rodman at the time. Like, dude, it, it, like it just all came back. I remember every poster I had of Michael Jordan. They, it was every, all this, all the big shots they're showing in the last dance. I had a poster or that clip out like from the newspaper on my wall. Like Michael Jordan was it like i went i went to basketball camp i played basketball i made my dad put a basketball hoop in the driveway that we never used because after that summer i was done <laughs> but yeah it, i mean it's weird you know they talk about the lebron mm-hmm. effect i don't think it's it just was different i mean oh, dude basketball became <clears throat> completely out of this world sport when michael jordan and the bulls took over and i think that i think you're right so much so much happened since then you know, in the world. I mean, if you really not think about once, it, <clears throat> no matter what anybody says, rings, anything. Yeah. I mean, LeBron, was, LeBron could win every championship for the rest of his career and he still wouldn't be the same kind of player. Like Michael Jordan is psychotic. Well, He's just psychotic. True. But, you know, NFL hadn't fully taken over yet. Baseball was struggling with strikes on, strikes off, and a bunch of other issues. Then you had the year 2000. And then you had 9-11 and you had so many things happen since then that kind of shifted our focus. And like once, once Jordan was out of the zeitgeist and they started talking about other stuff, it was the joke for a certain period of time also that basketball didn't, doesn't, doesn't celebrate history the same way baseball does and football does or other sports do. And so they kind of forgot about it. it. I really do believe that video games brought his name back up and this thing is going to remind everybody how huge the Bulls and Michael Jordan were. And, and like people who, it's the classic, even if you didn't like basketball, you watched Michael Jordan. Oh my God. Weird yeah. thing, right? Dude, I, I don't, I, it was the things that he says and does too. When you, when you listen to that documentary, he's like, he makes things up to get angry at. And you're like, you're insane. Yeah. And, and, and when he says he's going to show you, fucking A, man. He, it's like a dog who's just taken that one too many shits on the rug. And then the owner goes ballistic and just face mashed into poo for like way too long. That's Michael Jordan on anyone who's ever wronged him. Right. Well, I think the other thing is too, I mean, it's so hard to have that kind of ridiculous skill set and drive to back up everything that you say. It's just rare too. You don't really see that. I mean, people talk smack all the time and every once in a while they rise up to it, but just not, not at the, at the level that he did. No. It was unbelievable. He talked that shit, that shit he talked fueled him. Yeah. And I mean, just the things that he did and, and the shots that he made and the games that he won and the way that he made everybody better. I mean, it's just, it's, it's rare. And I think we're getting your, your, the look back is just reminding us how unique it was. The only regret I actually have was never going to see him actually play live. I think I only went to one game. Yeah. But those tickets, right away, right away, they were hard to get. Yeah, were they? And they were expensive, probably. Before, even before that championship. Because I think I went, I went, if I saw him play, it was before they won anything. It was when he was alone on the team, before Pippen, before they got him anybody. It was just like Michael Jordan was the new guy, and yeah. he was good, and he was showing people who was boss. But yeah. the Bulls were not like, I mean, that fucking 98 team, you can't. 
not, not one person in the NBA was like, we're going to get Gary Payton on the Sonics was like, well, fuck it. What do you want us to do about it? Like, yeah. it's, it's, just throw your hands up. It's like, just let them have the fucking trophy. <laughs> yeah. They, it, there was definitely a mentality of like, you know, just let them win it. Just let them, let them finish whatever they're going to do. And then the rest of us will be able to, if we can stick around long enough and our team's the thing. long the enough. Players, the win players, win so many good players that if Michael Jordan wasn't there, you'd have those guys posters on your wall. Dude. Oh, oh. The two years that Jordan didn't, sorry, he fucking remembers those dudes now. The two years that Jordan was out, it was like the Houston Rockets. No one talks about it. They won their two championships, and the Bulls came back, and it was like it's just it just went all went away. No, right. fucking people forget. Yeah, sorry. That you want to bring in our guest? Yes, I do. I do. I apologize. I went off. No, no, apologize. I was saying the same thing. You and I could go on and on. And on about I could fucking amazing. honestly. That that Bulls team, that documentary, and the Long Strange Trip documentary by the, that came out about the Grateful Dead are the two best documentaries I've seen, docu series I've seen in forever. Yeah, I think uh, if you've ever listened to this show or watched the live stream, they don't know that you like the Grateful Dead. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, it's you weird. Never brought it up. It's weird. Okay, so I, anyway. I tend not to. Guys, our guest, very excited. I can't. I was kind of shocked when I realized we hadn't had him on yet. Um, surprised me. But uh, amazing comedian, hilarious comedian, uh, screenwriter fucking actor guitar player singer songwriter producer director henry phillips there everybody and how are you him. man yeah i'm doing good <clears throat> good great to have you i appreciate you doing the show oh thanks for having me on are we are we gonna look back on this time and um call our beards COVID beards? Is that what if if, if anything is dated in this time? I, well, you know that's what people love doing, right? Well, I, label. Definitely, because I have never been, John, you know, I, I I both of you guys know I I have never had a beard. Um yeah. I fought it all the way. I mean, I went back to Galifianakis and Canaan and all those guys, and I was like, no, I'm not doing it. I, I know I know that everybody gets a beard and then they have a magical career, but I don't <laughs> know. Fight it. So That's wait a minute, Henry, are you serious? I did not Brendan Walsh. Brendan Walsh and I used to do the road and he was clean shaven. He moved out to LA, got himself a big old beard, and he's on Conan, like <laughs> I'm like, why am I such an idiot? Well, I thought back in the day, talented, I should say. I thought back in the day that it used to be if you wanted to be famous, you had to have a mugshot. So you're saying the beard is the new mugshot? Oh yeah, I guess so. Why? What are you saying mugshot for? What? Because Tim Allen had one. Well, if you look at all, it's funny how many famous people all of a sudden you see mugshots. Like even Sinatra has a mugshot. Like a lot of people have mugshots, and you're like, oh shit, maybe that's what I should have done. Yeah, they, all those mugshots look cool and old. The ones <laughs> now look like I'm scared or I'm on meth or uh. yeah, it's a little bit different. But you know, so, so you know what's funny, Henry? You do bring there there in in that joke. There is some reality about, especially when it comes to being a comic, because you're one person on a stage. How much you? How much we actually? Whether we want to admit it or not, we think about our look and how it coincides with our material and where we stand in the hierarchy of comedy. Because people will judge you: beard on, beard off, hat on, glasses, jeans, no jeans, flip flops, tennis shoes. Those things actually matter, right? They do. And and you know what? I I had a moment a few years ago because I was always like uh, some kind of like uh heroically trying to fight it going you know what no it's what i say that means something who gives a shit what i look like i'll i'll just have a t-shirt and stuff 
But then I'm going like, well, when I was a kid, I was a big Led Zeppelin fan. And I'll tell you right now, if those guys looked like a, b- a bunch of 65 year old plumber dudes, I probably would not have been even the least. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know why I just thought that the performance had in comedy had nothing to do with the way that you look. And it's like, it's a look. It doesn't have to be a rock star look, but it's at some point, you know, you look at a guy like Mitch Hedberg, you know, um, somebody once told me, that if you if you can draw somebody, then that's a really good indication that they're going to have a look that works for them, you know. And like Mitch, you can draw him, you know. He's got the long hair and the glasses and kind of thing, you know. Yeah, I don't think you can draw me. I, if you drew me, it would just look like a stick man, you know. <laughs> it's a regular three <laughs> fingers holding a, a guitar. Well, yeah, and and Huck has that great joke about if you draw him, he most likely is going to get picked up by the police department. That's yeah. the drawing, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah try to find him <laughs> yeah totally well, yeah i mean it, look matters and did you have you ever done anything on stage where you had a different look and it wasn't going well and you're like son of a bitch it was my look i didn't i i was yeah, no, i mean i definitely i think i've had the reverse of that where you have your lucky shirt you know it's like okay i'm wearing that shirt every set like you just correlate it that way um, especially, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, but, but yeah, I, I have to, how's, how's the lucky shirt work out? I have to feel like myself up there. Yeah. If I had, yeah. if, if somebody gave me a makeover like they have on these shows and I went on stage, I would feel really weird. I'd feel fine until I s- caught a glimpse of myself and be like, who's that? You know, yeah. Yeah. if you didn't have to look at yourself, if you weren't like in the belly room, staring at the yeah. mirror to your left, or you weren't like looking at a mirror in the back of the room. And also, yeah. the comics are vicious about it. They'll, if they see you trying a new look, they're like, "Ooh, oh, dude, yeah, what <laughs> exactly?" Then it's like, then it's like, who do you think you are? Like, like if if I showed up in a black T-shirt, it'd be like, "Okay, Louis C.K., that's enough <laughs> yeah, yeah. of you." Like, yeah. black T-shirts? I can't wear a black T-shirt. Yeah, wow. but he saw Louis special. Yeah, I mean, you can't you. you Look, we're all comics. Certain things do need to be made fun of. I mean, if one of our friends decided to start wearing a top hat on stage, we're bringing it up and we're harassing them endlessly. Like, oh, you're the top hat guy now. Oh, okay. I see yeah. how this is going. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was, there was the infamous story about, I won't say his name, but there was a guy that I used to know. He was uh, back in the early 2000s. He was, all, he was like an angry comic. He never really made it, made it. But then on his downward spiral, or as we like to say it, on his way out of the business, <laughs> he started wearing lettuce on his head. And he never really referenced the lettuce on his head, but it was just like you kind of knew he was that was he was at he was at the end of his comedy journey if that was the best he could come up with. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, so I'm just gonna start lettuce wearing head. vegetables. <laughs> that was like uh, cabbage head from Mr. Show. Yeah. Carrot top. <laughs> the carrot top nemesis. Yeah, totally. Uh, uh, did you? So you probably had to cancel a lot of your road work for the rest of the year, huh? Henry, uh, wait. Oh. Everything's slow down there. Are you there? Oh Can yeah. You Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to technology, Henry. You. Uh... Yeah, yeah. We had a little. Yeah. Uh, go, go on. Okay, uh, sorry. I was say? saying. Did you? Uh, you I, I'm assuming you've uh, lost the rest of the year's road work that you had lined up? Oh, yeah. 
no, I had some really sweet gigs coming up in April. You know, those, those ones that when they, when you get that phone call, you're like, yes. And it was going to be, I was going to be going to, uh, I think like Stevens point, Wisconsin and another Wisconsin, uh, you know, kind of remote Wisconsin gigs, but they were like, uh, Bob and Tom related shows. So they were going to be nice, you know, probably 500 to a thousand seat. Oh yeah. I was going to, it was going to be great. I was going to fly into Minneapolis. I was going to have, uh, dinner with a few friends there and then head on out at my leisure to do the gigs over the weekend, come back. I was really looking forward to it. And then boom. Um, and, and of course I had a bunch of other gigs too, but those, those I was looking forward to and hopefully they'll come back eventually. But, uh, yeah, it'll just be rescheduling and everyone trying to get at the same venue and do whatever they also had canceled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, they talk a lot about comedians that that outside of the gigs, the 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 quarantining or the self isolation doesn't affect them as much because they're used to spending a lot of time by themselves in their houses and not interacting with people when they're not on stage. Um, have you found that with yourself as well? I mean, I know obviously you know you're you know you 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 are living with someone, so you got you have somebody to hang out with, but. Yeah, well, she has, has been off work. You? She's been off work, so that's been the weird part. But um, yeah, I mean, I I've always worked out of home, and you know, when and my my road work was really uh, diminishing over the last couple of years. I kind of made it's almost like I was setting myself up for this situation because um, just just by nature of uh, getting older, I was like, man, I can't keep on going to LAX and then flying to Indiana or whatever. I got to be careful what I say because I was at a cocktail party and then telling somebody this exact thing. And I said, I can't fly to South Bend, Indiana. And then the guy's like, what's wrong with South Bend? And he was from South Bend, Indiana. And I was like, oh, okay. So I got to make sure. Yeah, but that's not, but that's not what you're talking about. You're not going, hey, your city's a shithole. You're just saying, it's a fucking yeah, long flight that you get there. It's not home. So, yeah. Yeah. So I just can't, um, I, I just can't do it as much anymore. And so I've been kind of preparing that and that's why I've been trying to do, um, well, I got lucky and did some acting work last year and oh, Silicon and, Valley. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's easy to come by those, uh, those acting gigs. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, um, but if you, so, we're going on about eight weeks or so of this and it's it, obviously, you know, as far as live performance and even production, uh, there was really nothing on the immediate horizon with respects to that. What are you, what are you doing to fulfill yourself creatively right now? Um, the big thing is, well, I'll, I'll work up to it, but um, I, I've, I've, tried to get some bucket list things. I've got a buddy who's got a prog rock band and um, I've always wanted to shoot a video for them because I've never shot a vid- a music video, but I love old school music videos. So I was like, let me make a video for you guys. So we're actually doing that, you know? And oh, cool. uh, yeah, we, we went to a giant rehearsal space and we were all, one of the guys is a healthcare worker. So we all had the masks and sanitizer six feet apart, the whole deal. But I, I uh, recorded uh, some great footage of them taking it home. And so that's one thing. And then also, obviously, there's no you know career <laughs> in doing that at the moment. But um, there were a couple of other little things. But, you know, I do my Henry's Kitchens every month on Patreon. Those are so fucking funny, man. 
Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of fun doing those and, and they actually pay a lot of bills, you know? Um, and, and so most recently I started my new, uh, my new web series called the highway man, <laughs> which is, uh, it's basically a spoof on uh, highway to heaven, you know, <laughs> to go around and help people, but he just has, he kind of makes it even worse for them because he has no idea what the hell he's doing. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry. I've seen those really funny. Yeah. yeah um, but, uh, so I'm launching it and you know what, we're one thing, I, I don't know how this is all going to shake out. I mean, there's, there's going to be a ripple effect. I, I do know a little bit of, about economics. And, and also, we remember in 2008 when we had that huge crash, I remember going, well, I'm fine. I'll just keep going to the comedy clubs. But it's like, yeah, but what if the people who pay for your comedy don't have jobs? <laughs> you know, Then they can't go to the club. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's the ripple effect. And it's going to happen. And, you know, at what point are people going to stop buying what I have to sell? You know, so I'm, I'm bracing myself. But at the moment, um, people have been really supportive. And I, my my whole thing is like, Look, if you're going to be watching, uh, you know, all these shows like Game of Thrones or whatever, why not watch my shit also? You know, we got the time, yeah. dude. And for anybody who isn't, uh, real quick, for anyone who doesn't know, Henry's Kitchen, you can find on YouTube. You can probably find it at your website. Uh, I assume is henryphillips.com. But yeah. Henry's Kitchen is was before Highwayman. There's a lot of episodes, and it's probably the best cooking show you're ever going to see. Thanks, man. We'll, now, we'll just say that. Now, I, th- you and I haven't really talked about this, Henry. Yeah. But I rem- and I, I'm sure this will refresh your memory. So I'm playing Trivial Pursuit with my family. Oh yeah, this is one of my best, my favorite stories in my and, and all of a sudden, it comes up this question: This famous comedian has a cooking show on YouTube. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, interesting. I flip it over and it's Henry Phillips, Henry's Kitchen. So I take a picture and I sent it to you. And I'm a, you did not know, correct? You did not know that you were, you were a question on Trivial Pursuit. Yeah, that, that blew my mind. Dude. <laughs> I would have never seen it if you hadn't have pointed it. Who would it. have? Who can play that game for longer than three yeah, minutes? No. <laughs> <laughs> that game sucks. I, but that's I, crazy. I made it into the 2000s version of um, – of Henry's kitchen or of a uh, trivial <laughs> Henry's kitchen. I was already in, but um, yeah, that blew my mind. And I put it on my Facebook, but I had already been doing a couple of these Photoshop things where, uh, Oh, people thought it was bullshit. <laughs> so everybody's like, Oh yeah. That like, they're really going to put you in trivial pursuit. <laughs> but, uh, no, this is the real deal. This is really it. Um, that's, dude, I think cool. that's fantastic, man. I well, mean, yeah, that's, that was that's kind of like the, being spoofed on SNL or something. Like you're, exactly. you're, yeah. you're, I, you're in there. That was a huge highlight. Yeah, that I thought that was really cool. It's like you know, I mean, look, there are very few moments in life where, where you know, you know, obviously, Trivial Pursuit is a massive game. It's a huge. It's a part of our culture. It's been around for whatever twenty years. Everybody to, knows what you're talking you're about when you're it, it. And you can turn to your family and be like, I know this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know and your family guy. goes, uh, okay, no. whatever, lunatic. Fucking roll the dice or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I want to be clear. My kids are at the point, were at that point in their lives where they didn't give two shits about who I knew or what I did or anything. Yeah. They were completely unimpressed. But, you know, I was excited. So that's all that mattered. Well, yeah. And um, I... Uh, Dude, I think it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, the... 
I, I, I kind of accidentally did the right thing when I started doing those kitchen videos because I remember coming back from Montreal Comedy Festival, which is always a big self-esteem booster. I <laughs> <laughs> didn't have any write-ups or any. I had I felt like I had really good sets and nothing. Nobody came up to me at the cocktail party afterward. Hi, I'm I'm agent whatever. So um, so what happens is uh, I came back just feeling really down. I was also going through a breakup at the time, and. Um, I just started watching YouTube and just seeing uh, that there was just this phenomenon. And, and unfortunately, you can't see them as much anymore because of the search engine optimization and the algorithms on YouTube. They they put all the good ones on the top, the quote good ones. But back then, all all the suggested videos next to the big recipe thing was just a guy in his attic <laughs> and and just droning on and on about chili or whatever and just like you know i mean i've got a buddy who makes chili he thinks that you have to have beans i don't want to be in that argument but like like there was just so much just funny Mundane. yeah and i was like i i have to start making these and then i did the first one and i i think you know that you're onto something if um uh, if you have a hard time doing it with a straight face, even though you're just by yourself, like I, <laughs> I can't even do this without laughing. And then, uh, so I made one and I remember I sent it to my buddy, Chris Fairbanks. Oh, I love Fairbanks. Don't, don't send this to anybody because I, I, uh, I'm not done yet. It's, it was like six and a half minutes, but I'm curious to know what you think. And he, I, he must've missed that or something because he just posted it everywhere. <laughs> great. Like, like, share this just yeah. with the internet i'll just share it with the internet don't worry yeah, exactly so it was like three thousand views or something like that and i was like wow that's great and uh and so then i did another one and this is this is that time when we all heard about a, vi a video going viral but nobody really knew how you could make that happen and so um i did a second one and uh sent it to Sarah Silverman or, or maybe one of our mutual friends sent it to her and she tweeted it. And of course at that time she had millions of, she still does, you know, but yeah. 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 Then it just sort of set on fire. Then it ended up on Reddit and then all of these things. And then she basically gave me a career with that tweet because it's been, it's like millions of views now on the, on the YouTube channel. So um, how long ago did you start it? Uh, 2011. So it's 2011. Okay. Years. Damn, that's fucking crazy. Do you, yeah. we were talking about this before, I mean, you know, was production or like making things, was that always something that you wanted to do or was that just something that kind of came out of all of this? Yeah, I, I think, it, I think the latter, I, I, um, I think at heart, I've always been somebody who likes, uh, I like to hear the sound of laughter. I, I like to make people laugh, you know, I all going all the way back. You know, I think all of us have this same kind of a instinct where it's just like, I want to be the guy who chimes in with the thing that makes everybody laugh. I don't care if it's the serious thing or whatever. And, um, so I started doing that when, when I would go to open mic nights and watch music in the coffee house scene. I, I'd see these serious songwriters and I'm like, I want to be the one who does it shitty, you know, like, <laughs> wears my heart out of my sleeve and says way too much. And so that was kind of <laughs> what the act came about, you know? And, uh, 
And then I think the kitchen thing was just sort of an extension of that. It's like, well, I'm not hanging out in music clubs anymore, but I'm hanging out in my bachelor apartment and there's all these YouTube people. So now I want to be the guy who does this in a bad way, you know? And I think that that's just sort of, and, and then if there's some production, if there's some uh, bridge you have to cross to get there, well, shit, I got to learn how to edit on iMovie and I got to use, learn how to hold the camera and all that stuff. Then you just sort of learn that stuff the same way, you know, you have to learn technique, you know, as a stand-up comedian, you know, but it all comes from this urge to just try to figure out some new way to make people laugh, you know. So was was Henry's Kitchen the first thing you you had you had made yourself? Like was that the first time you kind of dipped your toe in the water of, of messing around yeah. and editing and shooting and all that? Well, kind of- no, Henry's Kitchen came out 2011. You'd already done a movie basically yeah, on but, your own. But I wasn't involved in the filmmaking aspect of that. I was involved with the casting and the writing, but I, I wasn't involved with anything technical at all. Yeah, so that was kind of your... A lot about editing. I started oh, okay. editing sessions. Yeah, as a matter of fact, let me. that's kind of a funny story that you just brought up because uh, a couple of years ago, my friend Gray Griffin, who is a very accomplished uh, voice actress, and she also is a comic, and she called me uh, saying, I want you to produce a comedy special for me. And I was like, all right. And then, um, <laughs> uh, all right. It came out great. We shot at this place in Burbank and we put it up on Amazon. It's called my first comedy special. And, um, and at one point during the production, like when it was way too late, she, I said something like, you know, keep in mind, this is the first time I'm doing this. And she's like, well, I thought you've directed two movies. And I'm like, no, no, not at all. That, that's not me. I didn't direct those movies. <laughs> And, uh, and she's like, oh, really? <laughs> Too late. She asked me if she thought I had some kind of expertise in filmmaking. Right. And I didn't. But I've been I've been trying to learn, you know. But that was Greg Viennes, my partner in crime with the two movies, you know. Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, he was a film professor at UCLA. He handled all of the technical aspects. And uh, I was just the guy trying to provide the, the jokes and uh, and, you know, the stories. Well, and, and it, both those movies, if anyone listening hasn't seen them, see Punching the Clown and and Punching Henry is the second one. Yeah, right? which yeah. both of you guys have a uh, a relation to uh, the second movie. Yep. Uh, you know, and I'm a huge fan of the first one, which made me super excited to be involved in the second one at all. So yeah, what I what I find what I like about it is you're a perfect example of somebody you. you you're if I was to point to like, okay, sometimes you have to do that. You have to create things for yourself. You have to, you have to take charge of the situation, which is I think where people confused you being the director of your projects with the fact that you were very instrumental in making sure like, you're like, I'm just going to make a movie. I mean, at some point you have to make a decision. Either you're going to keep asking somebody else to help you make a movie, or you're going to be like, you know what? Hey, me and a couple trusted people. Let's just let's just go do it. And it, it was that kind of what it came down to for yeah. you in the first one. Either way, well, the first one we had been talking about. We uh, Greg and I met in college at UCLA, and we had, I would always tell him these ridiculous stories that would happen to me as a comic, and he would think they were great, and he'd be like, "Man, I, I want to be a filmmaker one day. I'd love to put all these things in there." So we we had been working on that from that angle for a long time, but. Yeah, the motivation, you you really have to fight, uh, the older you get, you have to fight that um, defeatism because I'm like, 
who in the hell did I think I was that I, I thought that we were going to be able to make a movie. And uh, it's sort of like skipping all of the, like you got a guy like Anthony Clark who went from sitcom to sitcom and everything like that. I was like, well, I'm going to make a movie. <laughs> I, I think of the analogy. It's like, like in Hollywood, everybody's like got their house and I'm like a guy who just built a little fort in the mountains. And I'm like, Hey guys, I got one too. And it's like, <laughs> I live here too. I live here too. Wait, that doesn't count. You just made that. You're not even on your own property. What is this? Yeah. But that's, but that's what our, our spirit was. We're like, we don't have to be famous to make a movie. We're just going to make a movie. And we did. But you don't have to be famous to make a movie. And you did make a movie. You got it's a, funnier than a lot of fucking movies out there. And But you know what? Even if it wasn't, you got to want to make the movie. It's that simple. If you don't want to do it and if you're not enjoying it, well, what the hell are you doing? That's right. And the, and the older you get, unfortunately, the more um, the more difficult it is to keep that same childlike, naive enthusiasm, you know? Um, but you gotta, you gotta try to keep it because otherwise, you know, you're retiring basically. But you had, but you got, with respects to the, the, the um, punch in the clown. I mean, that was very well received. Um, did you do film festivals and all that kind yeah. of stuff? Yeah. And, and did you, did you it was one of the best years of my life? It's 2010, I believe we, we started at the slam dance film festival. I think that might've been 2009. Uh, or 2010, I don't remember. Um, I the, for the first screening, I was at uh, Jukebox out there in. Uh, oh, really? <clears throat> Peoria. Working with Mike McRae, and I I just got phone calls from Greg, just saying, "Man, the movie just killed." We had, you know, it was 500 people in there. There were celebrities. There was everything. I did the Q and A, and it's like, uh, so I, that was kind of cool. And then I I got off the road and then went to S- Slam Dance for the second screening and that was just as great and um and then um we got into a whole bunch of them uh vancouver baltimore fort lauderdale um there there, there were quite a few festivals that we did and um yeah it was an amazing it was so much different from being a comic to me and for a very specific reason because think about this as a comic if you're unknown, you can still get called into a place like Peoria because there's just fewer people out there that are that are doing it that are even as accomplished as you are. So you start going to all these remote kind of towns. But a film festival is a totally different nature because the only way a film festival works or a comedy festival is you have to have it in a place that big VIP type people would go anyway, like to, you know park city you know austin and montreal you know whatever um so i was just going to all these really really nice places and and just one one to the next i went to new york we did the uh the um it was called i think the next gen uh film festival that was huge in fact they had a big swanky party with a bunch of models and stuff and i saw a recap of the party it was the punching the clown party you can find this on youtube by the way I don't think Greg or I even appear in this 
uh, in the little video that they did of the, the recap of the rap party. It's just all like models and stuff hanging out and drinking and stuff like that. I was like, well, where are we? <laughs> well, they're like, yeah, you're over here in the corner in the dark. Yeah. Maybe they would have kept you in there, Henry, if you had uh, brought your um, Silicon Valley clip on ponytail uh, with you <laughs> oh, man. with the ladies. Dude, I need to well, start wearing that. Well, first of all, that's let's let's talk about that for two seconds because yeah. before you were in Silicon Valley, you made uh, punching Henry, and when I shot my scene, I showed up on the day that my scene sort of coincides with. Um, uh, oh my God, I'm I'm spacing on his name, Mike Judge. Oh my God, yeah. Mike Judge. I was like, Steve <laughs> butthead. Fucking come on. But but so I was like, Oh, is that Mike Judge? And you're like, Yeah, yeah, Mike Judge is doing this. He was he like he liked the first one and he'd be in the second. I was like, Oh man, that's great. And then he turns and Mike Judge has this little shitty ponytail. And I was like, Oh my god, tell me that's not his. And someone's like, Oh no, that's a thing that Henry told me he's gonna wear. I was like, Oh, hilarious, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then I see Silicon Valley and I'm like, Oh, did he make Henry wear that? Like, is this so <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, uh, he, uh, let's face it, hair in general is hilarious, you know, Dude. whether it's curly or huge, like any, anybody who's trying to make a statement with their hair in a, in a comedy is just funny, you know? Yeah. And, and there's something about like older tech type people that have these ponytails. It's like, it's real. Not going anywhere. You could take as much off the top. It's fine, but I'm keeping that ponytail. And so, uh, so yeah, I think, uh, I can't remember if that was just something that um, that because uh, Mike and I had hung out a few times and we were just laughing at just at the the stereotype of the sound guy and the ponytail and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean his character in your movie is is the guy that's like been at the fucking shitty club for yeah, way yeah. too long, does not give a fuck. He's like, I don't know, I got these cables and I got this. If you yeah, can't yeah. use these, that's it. It's like, dude, you're not helpful. You're irritating. <laughs> the guy just wants to say no by all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, and then and then so I wound up getting cast in his show, and then I was wearing a ponytail too. So there's just a big ponytail thing going on. You do you do you do a lot with uh, with very little in that character. Like I feel like people see that character and they're like, God, I know that guy. Meaning like you're the, it's the everyday tech guy. Like you said, the ponytail, the being in the weird room with all the systems running. Don't really talk to a lot of human beings. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you right out. I, that's the first big acting job I ever did, and I think I was just terrified. <laughs> I was just like. Uh, I can't, I can't forget any of these lines cause that's going to piss anybody off more than bad acting. So I think I'm just going to make sure that I get those wow, through it. <laughs> yeah. It's just, well, dude, you, you did. It, it's a great part though. It's really, really like, well done. playing a used car salesman or something that would have been terrible, but, uh, but that type of character, it kind of worked. Let's, let's take a, a step back. You are a native from uh, Southern California, correct? You grew up oh, in New York city and then moved to, um, LA, uh, when I was about 12. So said, uh, I'm sorry, I missed you. You said you, you grew up in New York. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, what were you doing? What was your family doing out in New York? Uh, well, my, my mom, uh, met my dad and, and doing a play, they were in a play like in Delaware or something. And my mom was from, 
Minnesota and my dad was from Virginia and um, they were just both uh, starting out an acting career. My dad was a lot older than she was. Uh, he had been married and stuff and she was pretty young and she just wanted to uh, start her life and um, didn't want to be an 18 year old uh, in New York City by herself. And so they they kind of I mean, they fell in love and everything, but it also kind of made a lot of sense to hook up immediately. And then that way they had a partnership right at the beginning in New York City. And uh, and uh, yes, they started having kids. And um, then uh, my dad. My mom cleaned up with the commercials. She just hit commercial after commercial. She just became like the spokesperson. You know, she became that annoying uh, actress that people would see all the time on commercials and, and everything. Know. Yeah, that was throughout the seventies and eighties. And then uh, my dad, the whole time, was doing uh, theater in New York. So even though he wasn't really earning a lot, he was becoming um, sort of a inside, you know celebrity you know like a building up some you know he was in buried child the original uh by sam shepherd wow uh, yeah he was in the the new york uh premiere that that won a pulitzer prize you know and um jesus so he's a respected actor actor yeah i yeah, know and he was really good and um and so then i i think what happened is we moved out uh well we came out in 1980 for one stint because my dad was in a um uh, my dad's friend had written a one-man show and said it was being produced out at this theater on melrose and it'd be great if he could go out and do it so we we all moved out for like a year and uh lived in alhambra and my dad did that that show and it got great reviews and the best part about it is that danny devito's wife Rhea Perlman who I think they were just dating at the time did sort of a double header you know like she did her one-man show and then my dad did his and uh, Danny DeVito was there every night and he fell in love with my dad and he was just like uh yeah we got to get you on taxi and so uh and so during that little stint that we were on he got they got my dad on taxi and he did an episode called on the job dude amazing yeah it was an amazing like um episode he uh, all the cast members leave the taxi place they get laid off and then they have to find other jobs so elaine winds up working for this eccentric businessman who was my dad and it really uh made a lot of waves you know and then he um then we all moved back to new york but nothing was really happening and eventually my parents were just like uh yeah we got to go back out there and so they did. Is it because of knowing full well that your dad had a better opportunity to, I mean, your mom is still able to do spokesperson work. She could do that on either coast. You know what I mean? She could yeah, get commercial yeah, and stuff. But if, yeah, she, she was just, on either way. Yeah. At a certain point though, when you're like an actor, actor in New York, if, if you're not like in every Scorsese movie, yeah, you kind of have to move west in order to yeah, keep that momentum yeah. going. That, that's that's basically what it was. Yeah, they yeah. They, were, they were part of that. Um, yeah, you, you know, and that that it, that seems to still be the truth. I mean, I don't know. I I remember in in the early two thousands, I was friends with uh, so many New York comics that were all out here in LA. You know, and so yeah. I think that still goes on, you know? Yeah, I think I think there is stuff that gets shot in New York more and more, like the SVUs and stuff like that. But for the most part, 
they're working on stages out here. Henry, yeah. did, you, did you go to, were you a city kid? I mean, did you go to school in Manhattan? Was yeah, that yeah. PS 75 public school? Do you have fond memories of, of your time there being, is uh, it, it's gotta be different being going to school in a major city like that. Oh well, yeah, no, I, as a kid, well, we moved to Englewood, New Jersey for a little stand before we moved out to LA and it was amazing. I was like, wow, there's grass and trees and this stuff is amazing. But yeah, no, I got mugged. I mean, uh, I think about three times when I was in New York as an eight year old, like kids would uh, knock you over and steal whatever you had. You know, uh, I remember I had a skateboard. This is a pretty funny story. I, I had a skateboard that my parents bought me. It was like $9 or something like that. And I was so excited. And I went to 101st Street, which was a terrible idea. And everybody even warned me. They're like, don't go to 101st Street with your new stuff. And so these kids knocked me over, took it. I told my parents they were pissed. And then um, I had a uh, cousin of mine who had an old skateboard and, and he gave it to me and I was happy that I had another skateboard. I'm like eight or something at this point. And uh, so I went to 101st street again. Like, <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> I see this kid running toward me and I'm like, Oh shit. And so I started running with the skateboard ran super fast all the way back to my building and started hitting the buzzer, you know, cause so I have to wait. And we were on the first floor and my mom came out and then this kid is, is, is on me at this point and he's trying to take the skateboard. My mom came out and she was so pissed. She grabbed the skateboard out of the kid's hand and then she smacked him with it. <laughs> <laughs> and that looked like I, that's the snap, dude. <laughs> you know, it kind of limped away and was <laughs> like, fuck, that hurt. <laughs> yeah. I, he's probably glad his friends didn't see that. Yeah. I, um, well, it's funny as I'm listening, I'm like, oh shit, of course you don't. It, I'm thinking of New York now. I forgot what New York was like in the 70s. Oh, yeah, no, now. I mean, it was. Dude, Escape from New York was a movie that was a documentary, oh, yeah. I guess. I totally got that. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, um, it was stereotypically bad. I mean, it was like 77, you know, you had the heat wave and the son of Sam and the blackout. You know, it was like hell, man. And there was burnt out buildings back then, and all that stuff was going on back then, right? uh, One more time, what? All the burnt out buildings and all that stuff. Yeah, Yeah, it was really depressing. But you don't know that as a kid. You don't know until you see everything else, and then you look back and go, "Wow, that was really shitty." You know. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But you know, smell the urine. as, As an adult, I loved New York. You know. Yeah. But, well, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but but as a kid, man, that that was not fun. weird. Um, quick question: Are you still looking for the skateboard? Uh, you know what? That's a good. Yeah, I'd <laughs> like good. to find it. There were 101st. I, I did. I did tell the cops about it, and they kept coming around and said, "We're going to get you your skateboard back." But they never did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they were even trying. They were just trying to be cool. <laughs> they were not trying. As you get a voicemail tomorrow, Henry, this is uh, Jim. Hi, Officer Jenkins for the 95th Division. Heartwarming human interest stories. That's crazy. I I had no idea when I asked you about New York, you were basically described your childhood as a Law & Order episode every week. Yeah, yeah. uh, yeah. It's basically a taxi driver era. Yeah. But, But talking about, I mean, going from... 
Well, thank God you got out of New Jersey. But talking about going from New York to the Valley, I mean, dude, you're, that's like from the city to the suburbs. Like, I know, but I, I liked it because I was – I guess I was probably 12. And, of course, when you're a kid, you're watching Chips, you know, or you're watching dude. the Partridge Family or all these shows. And I'm just going, man, I want to be out there with the palm trees and the, you know – people with tans and stuff and go to the yeah, beach. bikinis roller skates I, you know what to this day if i ever get bored or, or if i get depressed or, or anything sick of la or whatever i just look out and i try to see some of those stereotypical viewpoints that we have the beach the the palm trees the mountains all that stuff it makes you feel better because i remember looking at it as a kid and just being like blown away you know yeah Every part of it, the heat, you know, uh, was great. It was, it wasn't the humidity that we had back there. It was just oh, like, God. you know, swimming pools are just not a thing in New York. You know, um, here you'd have friends that had a swimming pool or, <clears throat> you know, go to, we used to go to the, uh, rec center over there in, on Olive and Burbank there a lot. And, um, yeah. I'm very familiar with that rec center with my kids. Yeah. Yeah, we used to go, still, like, still go there a lot over the summer and play ping pong and do a bunch of stuff like that. So you also – so at that point, by the time you – this is about when – so what, what year did you move out permanently to uh, – I think it was 80 – well, it was middle of seventh grade, whatever that would be, like 83, I guess, you know. So you were right in the midst of and, – and a lot. I'm only bringing this up because a lot of people are talking about it right now with the movie Valley Girl. Oh that, yeah, out when that came out, and that's when you know I grew up in Wisconsin. John, obviously in Illinois, for us Midwesterners, like that was a that was a, a you know there were a couple other LA defining films, but that was definitely the valley of like this is what's going on on the West Coast, and that's These how people are insane, it, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there, there were a couple of other ones like Bad News Bears. Yes, it's a pretty good job of it, especially since I was about their age, you know. And so that's like when I moved out, I was like, oh, man, I'm like a bad news bears. My hair's getting longer. It's getting crazy. And then there was also like uh, Fast Times. Dude. uh, There was that the mall scene, you know, and the um, there was that line in there about. um, Do you guys even get cable TV up there or whatever, like. That was what people would say when you told them that you were from La Crescenta, you know, if you were in all the <laughs> But um yeah, so there were a lot there were a lot of uh big movies like that. But but you know, chips they they shot right on the two freeway. Right when we moved out here, they had just opened the two, but prior to that, they were building it and I think the show Chips uh contracted with them to be able to shoot on it. That, it was on that it. um clover leaf type um, oh yeah that thing yeah right yeah. Where they're driving the it uh yeah i mean well it's it's so funny you bring it we talk about this all the time in the show my my, my oldest son's name is tanner at, for oh, yeah. reasons i named him and i showed him the movie he got really pissed off at me because he's <laughs> a kid with dick but um but you know i mean that's not really how we saw it we saw him as he was as a child i saw him as an anti-hero he was like oh i thought he was great yeah, I mean, it was, but you know, obviously, in a different lens now, they're like, that kid's just a jerk that we wouldn't like at school now. So you're like, okay, fair. So funny, I can't picture that, but I'm going to have to watch it again. Uh, I, I, I remember it being awesome. 
I, you know, also E.T. is another perfect example, the way Steven Spielberg showed the valley, like not the valley, I know that was shot more. That was like in the hills, I think. The hill, yeah. Um, but, you know, it just, there are certain movies that I often wonder, and when I'm, I guess what I ask you is that, did it actually capture, uh, I know it's a heightened reality because it's film, but when you watch those things, are you kind of like, are you looking at it through the lens of like, yeah, that's, that's what, what we see, or... Yeah, Are you yeah. like that's not really what it's like because you're here, you're seeing, oh, yeah. you're seeing it. You forget. Uh, let you just kind of get this feeling like this sounds really selfish. You feel like the movie's just made for you. You forget that people that aren't here are watching it. You know, you're just like, uh, yeah, okay. So there's, you know, that's the junior high school on Van Nuys or whatever, and then that's this. You just sort of assume that that's the way all movies are. You know, right. <laughs> but I know that. Uh, with Deborah, my fiance, like when she sees Toronto in a movie, because she lived there for 10 years, she'll always get excited. And it's like, oh my God, that's blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, <clears throat> but, but it's, yeah. and it's always playing for New York or LA or Chicago, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, they're never setting the movie in Toronto. It's already set somewhere else, but Toronto's the city they shot Tommy yeah, Boy yeah. in. They exactly. shot like, they're trying yeah. to play it as something. Yeah, but, um, but yeah, so I, I just kind of got so used to seeing LA on shows that I, I kind of didn't even really phase me. Are you an only child or you have other brothers? No, I, got, I got an older brother. He lives in Arizona now, but yeah, um, we draw all this together. Yeah. It, obviously your parents were in the business, so I can see the direct connect for you, but w- what was the earliest you started wanting to do stuff? Like you really started wanting to be involved in well, the business that you were living, that your parents were in. My thing was music. Uh, like I, I loved music. I was playing guitar and bands and stuff like that. And I did fantasize about being, you know, on stage and being a, uh, a rock star and all that stuff. Um, that kind of went away. I, if I ever looked at acting, but believe it or not, my, my parents kind of rolled their eyes every, every time either my brother and I came up with this, like, Hey, I think I could be an actor. And, uh, they're just like, oh, you know, they didn't know any part of that. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> there wasn't a lot that they could do anyway, you know, I mean, um, but yeah, so I, I think that that was just kind of generally discouraged. My brother, uh, my brother and I both wound up going to college. I became a political science major, you know, and then my brother was a business major or something at Northridge. And um, so everything just got shut off. But I think that, yeah, the, the artistic spirit was always kind of there for me. So as soon as there was a little bit of an opportunity to follow it, which was like my last year of college, I went to it. I went to, what was it? Um, It was called the Cinegrill. I don't know if that's still there, but it was. Uh, Yeah. Over on Sunset or Hollywood Boulevard. I mean, yeah, Roosevelt Hotel. And then back then it was in the front of the building and it was a little place. And I went in there because I wanted to see an act there, but that person wasn't performing. Uh, but I just wound up staying there anyway. And I had a few beers. It was kind of this time where I didn't really have a lot of friends, but I definitely just started getting used to the idea of showing up to bars and hanging out and having a drink and getting to know the bartender or whatever. And uh, the uh, at the end of the show, the piano player just said, does anybody have any random thing that they feel like doing up here? You know, and I think he was a little bit drunk anyway. And I was just like, 
Sure. And so I went up, there's like about 10 people. And I did this song that I used to do for my friends as a joke called, what do you want me to do about it? That I wound up making into a comedy song, you know, and so <laughs> I did it and it, it killed. And then I was like, okay. Um, and then I did it another time at an open mic night. And then my buddy, uh, a buddy of mine from high school who was doing a lot of music around town was just like, man, you, you're crazy if you're not going to every single one of these open mic nights and doing that song because it goes well every time, you know, you just got to do it. And I didn't, I never even thought uh, this was going to be some kind of a career, but it really did start going better than anything that was happening at school. I mean, you know, I, I, I did finish getting my degree, but I, I don't know what I was really planning on doing. I mean, with a political science major, I guess law school was something I thought about, but I didn't know how it paid for it. And it's just like, but I had this little opening and I was just like, well, maybe I'll do these songs. <clears throat> so I made a cassette tape and then I made a CD and then I started selling them. And then I started getting booked at these shows. Bud Friedman showed up to the Genghis Cohen one night when I was doing a show and asked me to come to the improv. And then no shit. Yeah. And I met Doug. Wow. Stone. I don't, I don't know that I've ever heard him doing that. Just walking up to saying, Hey, you should come by that club. I had my own uh, hour there, like that I was doing once a month. And there was an old uh, elderly actress named um, Ann Jeffries, who was amazing. And she would come to the shows and she told me I'm friends with Bud Freeman. I'm bringing him to this. And, and she brought him. I think the way I look back on it, it's probably the equivalent of let's say that we're all in our seventies and, and an 80 year old uh, Jennifer Aniston is all of a sudden pals with us and says, Hey, you got to go do this. I'm like, you don't lose that crush, you know. Right. <laughs> That's that is a really, really, really good, good point, yeah, dude. And Jeffries back in the day was the shit, you know. And, right, and Bud Freeman's not dead; he's still yeah, a horny yeah. old man. <laughs> like, oh shit! And Jeffries likes this guy, and so uh, I talked to him afterward, and he said, "You got to come by the improv." And so we set up a thing. Um, I don't remember what the show was, but. Uh, I just became a regular there and then, you know, but you know, I, it was a lot of work. I had to do a, I had to learn a hell of a lot about, I mean, I basically became my own promoter. I wasn't one of those, I was never one of those guys. Like I bring up Anthony Clark, you know, where you just like, you go on and destroy so hard you get a TV show. And that was really kind of the thing that everybody was hoping would happen. I always had to be the guy that had to, you know, show up and, uh, you know, show up to everybody else's shows so that they'd come to mine and I had to hand out tickets. I mean, I had to be a real hustler and a real promoter because I just didn't have that, that slam dunk, you know? Yeah. But that's, that's, that guy, I mean, that, that interesting about that, that seems like that's outside of the norm for you to be a promoter. Yeah. Well, I think that now though, all that preparation that I did, worked or because now we're all that right like yeah, yeah the new economy for for comics is we have to promote our own things and um that i mean literally it was like when i was hanging out at the improv in the 90s i was like okay so so my thing is i'm either going to be a sitcom star who gets 500 grand a week or I'm just going to be a guy telling jokes for a hundred bucks a night in, in Houston or whatever, you know, I, that's a huge difference. Like, yeah. 
it's like I don't, that's we're, so we're all going to be on a rowboat. There is this one cruise ship that comes by every ten years, and you might be able to jump on it, you know. So, but then everything started changing, you know, where we started being able to make our own stuff and actually have a working class living based on the work that you do, um, putting content out there. And that's so, like so you were a 1990s improv guy. Who was your class? Who were the people that you ran with back then? Uh, Tig, for sure. Um, I would say Stanhope, but he. He was there, but he was always on the fringe, even back then. Forty-year-old man. When I met him, when he was twenty, <laughs> doing it for ten years, you know. Um, uh, Gene Pompa, even though he was a little bit more experienced than I was, and um, Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy and I uh, used to do. He played the guitar. Yeah, didn't well, he? Yeah, we only guitar comics, and uh, yeah, we we were pretty close. And uh, there was even a moment like about. Uh, 15 years ago or so, which was still, God, 10, at least 10 years after we had hung out and uh, he had gotten on SNL and I saw him at the Coronet Bar and uh, some of my friends were there and they were like, dude, Jimmy Fallon's there. You should say hi. And I'm like, ah, he's not going to remember me and I don't want to bother him. And uh, But uh, I'll be damned if he didn't come over and give me a huge hug. Oh, wow. Yeah. I call it, I'm ca- I call it the I'm sorry I'm the one who made it and you didn't hug but uh, you know but um, no he was a very cool guy and nice. yeah he was part of that too uh, who were some of the other ones there um, unfortunately a lot of them you're not going to know who they were you know well but you know the other thing about you and and by the time I got out here in 2000. There, there was definitely different groups of comedians that and had different identities, which I never really liked. And there were some people like guys like Tom Clark and you, you guys floated in between these different types of comedians, whether it was traditional straightforward comedy or what we classified as alternative comedy or you know what I mean? like there was all these different groups. And it seemed like you were one of those guys that, and what I appreciated about you when I first met you was that that never seemed to be your thing. Like you didn't have to, you weren't worried about an identity of where you fit in. You were just happy to be there, happy to meet people. Just like, just, just glad that you were part of like, just, uh, just existing and being a part of, of the community as a whole. That's um, but obviously, you know, you did perform at all different types of clubs, correct? You, you, you fit into yeah. both the alternative scene and the regular scene. Yeah, I, I think that comes down to, um, like, your personality. You know, I mean, comics, by default, are sort of misfits. So it's not it's not that weird to be attracted to that alternative scene because alternative is sort of, you know, where we all come from in, in our lives. You know, it's like um, – so, so I, I always liked uh, going and – I was never, I was never really one of the like alternative comics that, that was like, had the, uh, the clout, you know, like, um, some of these guys did, but I would love hanging out in that scene and watching it. And yeah, I was more than happy to, to be performing anywhere that I could. There was, uh, you know what, I remember one of the, some of the earlier gigs that I did, I saw Bill Dwyer perform and I was like, uh, this guy's interesting because he's, 
freaking hilarious, but he's also a lot older than everybody else here. You know, I think he was probably about 40 when everybody else was like 28 or something like that. I don't know. I don't know the specifics, but I just can tell right. a little older yeah. than everybody else. And that, I, that has never ceased to inspire me because I'm always like, he fits in perfectly. He's cracking everybody up. So there's no time limit on this. There's no expiration date on this. And I love that because it takes a lot of the pressure off as opposed to being a rock star where you're 27 and you're done, you know? Right. Um, I, I, I wish there was, uh, I feel like that goes for everything across the board. Like uh, people who put are putting pressure on themselves to finish things and be at a certain level at a certain time at a certain point in their lives I really feel I are missing the point of just living and there is no expiration to do. It's never too old. If you're 65 right now and you hate your fucking job and you want to do stand-up comedy, start going to open mics. I don't know what else to tell you, but like there, there's, it's never too late and it's never, we should never feel like, Oh, I'm, I, I just turned 45. Like, I'm not going to be like, I, I'm 45 now. I got to really get it together. Like, no dude, I've obtained no other skills up to this point. Like I've, forgotten everything i've ever learned about english literature so i'm not going not falling back on that anytime soon yeah um i just i just feel like there there is no expiration there's no time limit and i think more people need to understand that no we're all really lucky to have like i remember brian hanging out with you at the old uh, bitter redhead room. yeah yeah those are some of the most fun times of my entire life like i just i remember just falling into that scene i i was going i was going through a breakup then too i'm always <laughs> i remember going like i can handle a breakup if it means coming to this comedy show and seeing everybody doing um not only back of the room jokes but also regular jokes and audiences loving it meeting new people i was just like this is fantastic um yeah, we're we're really lucky because I have a lot of friends that go to a through a breakup and they just show up to their cubicle every morning and uh that sucks. Or they don't have an outlet. Yeah. And this thing is yeah. always there. Yeah, it's always there. With people like that who show up at their cubicle, I, I'm hoping that somehow we or people like us are their outlet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like <clears throat> if someone is going through a breakup, I always hope like, man, I hope they can like they there's a comic they like or you know, I think if I ever went through a breakup again, I could probably listen to a lot of Richard Pryor. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, this guy has been broken up with a few times. He gets it. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, you need but, yeah. to tell you that you're not alone and, and to laugh at it. You know, it's, that's a huge part of it. What I love about what I love, it's funny you bring up the Bitter Redhead. What I liked about the Bitter Redhead, and there was a couple other places that were non comedy club uh, places, bars, restaurants, if you will, mostly bars. It's just, you know, going back to what you're talking about, about the misfit thing, um, it's just, there's something really cool about being able to go there. And it was never about succeeding and failing sometimes. It was just about being there and being with people that un that you understand and they understand you. You can have a couple drinks. And even if the show is shit, that, that group was going to make each other feel good by the time they went home that night. That's yeah. what I love about it. Yeah, no, Absolutely. That's so funny because we all we get into comedy like, man, I want to be a national headliner and I'll be on the road and I can you know make my own money. But like once we all reach a point where we're all on the road, all we think about is like, man, remember when we all hung out at that one place and laughed our asses off? And even though the show was terrible, there were six people in the crowd. The bartender was drunk. Like everyone was mad. But we all laughed our fucking asses off. Like you think about those things when you're on the road making money. You're like, hmm. That's what's so great about when somebody makes it. 
you know, like Lewis Black, you know, they always bring their old buddies from the from from hanging out at home with them on the road at Stanford, yeah. does it, you know, and because uh, that's at the end of the day, you know, those are the good times, you know. Right. Well, I, Chris Porter said it funny to me, too. Once he was like, I mean, of course, I want you to be funny. Like, I, I wouldn't bring you with me anywhere if you weren't funny. But also, like, more than you being funny is, are you a doofus in the green room? Or can I handle being around you for an extended period of time for like a weekend, you know? And I think that's a huge yeah. thing. It's like, even if someone doesn't think you're a killer, they'll be like, oh, man, yeah, come, you can come on the road with me because you're not annoying. <laughs> it's yeah, like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's something a lot of comics have a hard time doing. Dude, I feel like I, I had to learn that the hard way, but I feel like I did learn it. I will also say that one of the things that I don't think comedians give enough credit to, there are two things, and I think it's because it's easy for us to just kind of laugh these people off, is we – uh, um, when we're going to look back on our comedy careers, I mean, no matter where the levels of success are, I, th I think a lot of us will look back and talk about great times that were created by very unsuccessful comedians that were really good at running rooms and all of the angry yet giving and kind bartenders and club bar owners that let us fuck around in their venues for years oh, on. Yeah. And yeah. Because without, without those people, Right. I mean, what would we have had on a nightly basis? What would we have had available to us? And we don't really ever give them the credit that those people all deserve for what they've what they've allowed us to do. Oh, totally. No, absolutely. Um, uh, although there was kind of a funny thing that happened with the guy at the bitter redhead, the bartender wound up, wound up buying the place. Right. Yeah. The redheaded guy, and he was bitter. I think. Yes, he was. He fit. He fit all. He he checked off all the boxes on bitter redhead. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And bitter and redhead. He bought it. I remember Patrick and I went there, and uh, there was nobody there, and the guy was kind of bummed out. And but but this was at a, I was just going on a cleanse, like I was going on a health kick. I just had too much when I was on the road, and I was like, I'm not drinking. And I remember that guy going. Well, what about you, man? What do you have? And I was like, nah, I'm not drinking tonight. He's like, you're not drinking tonight? Nobody's drinking right now? What the hell's going on? I'm, like, I'm glad you're feeling good about, you know, punching about your, uh, your, your patrons here. He, I've never seen anybody more pissed off to find out what he's drinking. <laughs> oh, my God. But we'll never forget. But that's the thing is like you'll never forget that dude. Craig, his name is Craig. I will never forget. And like I don't remember everybody's names, you know. But like you know, I, there's just certain guys. You're like, yeah, you know, thanks, man. Thanks. Oh, yeah, for doing all this. There were no rules in that place. Yeah. No. Like people could just, you know, walk up to the comedian and start talking to him while they're on stage. That's how Patrick used to kill me on that because like. The, the worse the room was, the funnier he would get. It was just like amazing. That he was one of the first people I remember seeing going, he's better when he doesn't think he's doing good. Oh yeah. No, he <laughs> he's got that alternative thing too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The uh so with you, um where did you so were you at were you acting at that time too? Where did the acting thing come from? Because you said you didn't I which first you said UCLA and you were and your director buddy that that shot punching the clown with you and oh, yeah, um, no, we, we were both political science majors like we were not in any entertainment at all interesting so how did that turn into all of that 
if well, that's not what you guys went to school for. No, no, yeah. We neither of us had any intentions. Uh he he didn't come from an artistic family necessarily, but but they're they're French. They're so they're definitely more open to the arts than the, the this stereotypical American family is. Right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so, so, but filmmaking was something that he really wanted to do. And he was already all set. He was going to go to, um, Syracuse university for uh, film school after he graduated from UCLA. But, um, yeah, I, I started becoming a comic in that last year of UCLA and, uh, he and I became good friends and I would always just tell him these things that happened. I'm like, yeah, I made this deal with this guy where he's supposed to, pay me uh four dollars a head and at the end of the night there's 30 people out there but he gives me 14 dollars and i told him it's like that's not even divisible by four dollars like if you'd given me you know <laughs> 16 dollars or something that i'd be like okay there's four people but you you see how 14 is impossible right so he would hear this kind of stuff and he'd be like yeah we got we got to put this all in a movie you know so that's really what happened but the 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 comedy started from my hobby of music and it was put on a on hold while I was in college and then when when there was this little bit of an opening I jumped right into it by doing this open mic night circuit but when you actually made the movie and I think a lot of people don't really understand it's like you start most people we all talk about movies and that's as far as it normally gets I got a great idea I got a script and it's this just should like, be a movie because, I got a movie yeah. Well, because even if it's a great script, reality sets in that it's your script and a million other people's. Where's the money coming from? How are you putting this gosh darn thing together? How is this thing ever going to see the light of day? There's so many roadblocks that are put up. How did you guys get through all of that with 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 your movie? Oh, I'll tell you. Um, because there's okay. a, there's a yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of lessons in here too that I had to learn too. But um, so Greg and I had a script by like ninety seven or ninety eight. We had a full script. We actually shopped it around. He had a friend who worked for or for somebody in the entertainment industry, and they actually even optioned our script. It was like we got we each got twenty five hundred dollars or something like that. And then the, the idea is they're going to try to get funding for it. And I think they sent us. They we we got a uh, a flight out to um, England to go to a pitch meeting for it and stuff like that. Yeah, we were pretty excited. We're like, wow, we're high rollers. Actually, I got the free flight. Greg had to pay for it. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, I I think um, yeah, th- th- there was you know so so we we had this script and we couldn't wait to get it going and it's. You know, there would be a lot if you read it. It would be a lot like the movie that was made ten years later. But then, um, every couple of years or so, Greg, you know, started a family and stuff. And he—that <laughs> was the wrong sequence. Every couple of years, he started a family. <laughs> <laughs> He's got nine families now. He's doing pretty good. <laughs> yeah. No, he started a family, and then so every couple of years, he would just get all jazzed about it. And then uh, there was one defining moment when he was at UCLA teaching as a film professor and he saw all of his students, the equipment was starting to get so good. These digital cameras, they were starting to make their own movies. And one time 
in like 2006 or late 2006 or 2007, he showed up to my door and he's just like, fuck it. We're just making this movie. We're just going to make it. I don't care. I'm, I'm going to use credit cards. I'll take all the money that I've saved from my career. You know, I'm, I'm going to, we're going to do this. And so we did this, uh, we, we started having readings of the script and, um, one of his film students volunteered to be, well, no, how did, no, sorry. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So we, so I think he had a roommate at the time who was a producer and, uh, we shot a couple of scenes. Actually, Rick Overton was, was in it. He was playing the, uh, the bar owner and we were looking at the footage and somehow or another, and Rick was amazing, but there, there was something about the way it was being shot and everything that we stopped and we're like, this is not coming out to be the dream movie that we thought it was going to be. So let's, let's take a step back and, um, shuffle things around and, and do it differently. So, so I, uh, oh yeah. And then there was problems with the producer. He turned out to be kind of a weird flaky guy. And, um, so I talked to my cousin, my cousin is it. Did you guys hear that noise? I don't know what that was. That was John's weird noise. Oh. I said, what? Yeah. When you said a producer turned out to be flaky. Yeah, like, yeah. No. yeah. So, okay. So my cousin, um is a successful businessman he's like the only person in the, out of the hundred people in my family that's <laughs> really got a great business sense you know and i don't make sure we don't tag your brother in this okay <laughs> but uh no i'm the first to admit it but but uh so in toronto he owns a bunch of parking lots you know and it's because of just being really good at business you know so he literally just has passive income coming in every day just from owning this stuff. And he does a lot more than that, but that's just, so anyway, he came out to visit one time and he's just like, so what's going on with your movie? And I'm like, ah, we, we had this producer guy and he was a flake. And he's like, well, what kind of deal did you, what was in it for him? And I'm like, well, I guess the idea is that, you know, if you sell it at a festival or something, then on the back end, you get a point on the movie and he's like well what what are the likelihood that you're going to sell it and it's like i don't know it's probably a million to one and he's like well why would that guy do, do it you know, <laughs> a smart businessman is going yeah then what's in it for this yeah. dude nothing dude why are you mad at him yeah so he finally goes well what is there he's like i don't know anything about the film business but is there such a thing as hiring a producer just the same way you hire a plumber and just say here's our script here's the actors we want. Can you make our movie? And I was like, I don't know um, how that works. And he goes, well, why don't I pay a guy to do that? And then you can give me whatever the one point was that that's going to be on the movie in the back end or whatever. And we're like, okay. And I ran it by Greg and Greg's like, sure. So one of uh, Greg's students at work or at, at his, uh, at school, was just a uh, bright eyed, bushy tail, a lot of energy, Corey wish. Uh, you fix that all he. And, and so when we went to him and said, Hey, you're going to get 15 grand to produce a movie right out of college. That's his first gig. He's like, Oh hell yeah. And he was just on the phone and he was just like a kid in a candy store. You know, and he's just like, this is what I want to do. And the movie just started getting made. Location started falling into place. And, uh, Actors were getting called. We were dealing with SAG. All of those stumbling blocks that we had were just gone. And um, the movie wound up costing, I think, 100, 
it was a hundred grand budget and that money was, I didn't pay for anything cause I didn't have anything, but Greg uh, took out a lot of credit cards to pay for rental equipment. He also had money saved up basically his life savings at that point and talked his where's, money to hey, it. Henry, where's, where's the part of the story where he lost his family? <laughs> oh, that's coming. Yeah. Yeah. So, or, or he had to sell them. Yeah. Sell the family. But I've always said to me, it's, it's more about the art, you know, I mean, Sure, he lost his family, but uh, <laughs> sure, I invested nothing. Sure, I came out ahead. Money, you know. No, but uh, so anyway, and, and my cousins kicked in another. I think it was twenty-five grand at the end of the day. And my my cousin, being the good businessman that he is, talked his brother, who's my other cousin, uh, into going in halves with him. And oh, nice. uh, so that was the total budget. Um. And the movie got made, and then we we showed a uh, a two hour cut of the movie at uh, the Falcon Theater in Toluca Lake, and it was okay. It wasn't fantastic, but there was an editor there who's a friend of Greg's who worked for um, HBO and a couple of other. She worked on the movie Ghost World, and she volunteered because she was in between projects at the time to just sit down with us and just go frame by frame and just say. You know, this, you don't need the shot of the van here for six seconds. We get that there's a van there, you know, whatever. Like she, she streamlined through the whole thing. So it became 90 minutes and the pacing. Oh, wow. It was amazing what she did. I, I can't take away from what she did, you know. And um, so, so we ended up with this pretty great movie and then it, it did well on the festival circuit. Now there was this economic collapse in 2008. So when we premiered in 2009, at slam dance that's when um the whole economy crashed and every all we heard the whole time was like man if you were here a year ago you would have gotten a million dollar deal on this movie and uh so we got screwed on that but i'm used to that <laughs> and uh but um yeah and so greg is no longer with uh that wife or family at this point uh no um yeah he it was pretty hard on him, you know, because uh, he had he had put a lot into it. The, the money never made anything. There was like it was on Netflix. It got famous, but the the I'm sorry, the movie never made any money. Right, but you know, but is John John will be back? Yeah, it's, it's you know technology. He disappears. He pops back yeah. in. Yeah. The um, but the um, the interesting thing about that. Uh, the the two lessons that you hear about in Hollywood, one is don't make back end deals, right? Yeah. You see the money. And two, is, <laughs> yeah. and two is don't put your own money into it. It's very dangerous because it could destroy your livelihood. Um, and both of those things are true. I don't necessarily know if Greg has regrets. I'm going to guess not because the funny thing is after you telling us that story, you guys decide, you know what? We didn't make any money on that first one. Let's do a sequel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, because that, yeah, okay. <laughs> which is great, by the way, which is, I still love them. And I'm glad you did because they're both great films. But, you know, logic would say, no, no, let's cut our losses and move on, right? Yeah. We looked at it more like the first one was just sort of this diamond in the rough and what if we had the money to do it right? And so we actually went to a studio with that one and we got celebrities to be in it. Um, Tig, if, to bring her up again, and uh, Stan Hope and all, all the people. J.K. Simmons was fresh yeah. off winning an Oscar. 
Oh, I know. Yeah. For Whiplash, and he's in the movie. It's amazing, yeah. And, uh, and That's a guy who doesn't have to do shit for the rest of his life, and he's like, I'm still going to do these commercials, and I'm also going to do and punching and punching Henry. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. It, yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, but he he was a fan of the first movie, too. Everybody was a fan of the first movie, and that's why they agreed to do this. How did, how did that make you feel, though, hearing that people were like, oh, man, no, I saw this, and I liked it. And then at the when you made it and it came out, you're like, well, we're taking a loss, and no one's ever going to see this. And Yeah, no, I mean um, – well, going going back to Greg, Greg's an unstoppable force. Like I, I don't think he does have any regrets about that. He's just a guy who just knows what he wants to do. He wants to make movies, and uh, he, you just can't stop him. So I don't think he looks at it as like, damn, I wish I hadn't have done that. I think he's like, well, let's do it again. So, uh, yeah, the um, – you know what I would say to that, Henry, after all the years that I've been out here and even before I got out here, if someone was to ask me my advice, which they don't, but if they did, I would literally only have one thing to say. It's not going to be easy. So everything else that happens, great, but you need to understand it will never be easy. It just won't. That's, that's all I can tell you. The people that it, that it was ever easy, for, like, like take Stanhope as an example, um, it's fun to look at a guy and just see, 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 that, see that guy fucking huge success but that's you know that's not true he he used to be about the hardest working person out of any friend of mine that i had and he always uh was successful you know it's like you, you can't i think jimmy schubert told me one time that his dad when he, his dad i think was a cop and uh i could be getting so much wrong right now i don't know that's okay I, it's gonna okay. be a great story <laughs> But yeah, he, he said uh, when he told his dad that he was going to do the comic thing, he was like, all right, well, go ahead and do it. But I hope you don't think that you don't have to do your eight hours a day like everybody else or 10 hours a day or whatever it is. It keeps growing, you know, but. Uh, but that's but that's really that's true. That's like the Seinfeld thing when he was like writing one day, getting bored. He looked out his window and he saw construction workers finishing their lunch break and going back to work. He's like, I know these guys don't want to go back to work. They just ate. They'd rather go home, play with their kids, talk to their wives, do whatever, right? Go to a bar. But they're going yeah. back to work because they have to because they work so many hours in a day. So that was like in his head was like, that's what we have to do as comedians. We have to work that many hours in a day, whether it's writing. And now it's more than just writing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Writing is a chunk of that eight, eight hours but for me, it's become less of a chunk than it is like getting podcasts together and dealing with yeah. guests and talking to people and trying to write a script and fuck doing a sketch and trying to be in someone's video. And, you know, that's, I include all that in like the work. And Henry, how did the second film fare compared to? Um, the well, it landed on Showtime and there was a deal there. I don't think it was. Uh, I, they don't include me on a lot of the numbers, I guess, probably because I would just say I'm on podcasts. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, from what I gather, the fact that I'm not rich right now means that I'm guessing it probably wasn't uh, amazing. But, um, did, but you get, did you get a? Did it change for you? Kind of like comedy getting the bug. Did it change? Did you see yourself wanting to make more and more films? We talked about you being a, you know, starting to get into directing. Like what? What? How did it shift for you in the world of filmmaking and that kind of stuff? I think the first movie was the was the big life changer. That that's what happened with the first movie. The second movie, um, the fact that it was 
Showtime meant that it was limited to people that were scrolling through on Showtime and watching it there. It's not like it was on Netflix, even though we weren't making any money when it was on Netflix. I was getting recognized everywhere I went, you know, New York, San Francisco, Montreal, you know, people were just going, Hey, I think I just saw a movie with you. You know, that didn't happen with the second movie, you know, people huh. like it. I don't know if a lot of people see it because it's kind of behind a paywall, you know, um, for you, for you personally, did you, did was, was that, I mean, we talked about earlier to kind of circle back about the Henry's kitchen and Hireman and stuff like that. Did, are you seeing yourself now when you look back and go, wow, I'm way more production heavy now than I was before. Like I'm getting more joy. Like I'm seeing me more of me in that world now. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm way more into it. Um, I guess I've, my history with music has always been, I mean, that's production too. Yeah. Um, you're dealing with editing software and you're setting up mics and producing, you know, and scheduling sessions and stuff like that. So there's, there's a little bit of crossover there, but, um, yeah, it's just another one of these things where, uh, if you, if you can't, if nobody's going to, I'm trying to think of a variation. If you want something done, you got to do it yourself. You know, it's like, well, you can't be in your thing. You have to just do it yourself. You know, it's like, that's really what this comes down to. Um, I had to learn how to uh, shoot, a, you know, a couple of basic shots in order to make my thing work because I can't afford to get a, a DP, you know, or whatever, you know. Can you imagine so, having a DP for Henry's Kitchen? It's a guy in there like, all right, now stand awkwardly by the pots and pans. You're yeah. like, what? I could have fucking done this. <laughs> Redundant. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so here's here's an interesting uh, what I, what I find interesting in this business. There there's two different types of of people. There are people that over time develop relationships with people that become extremely famous, and they and they try to take advantage of that. I don't mean that in a negative way. That's what I'm saying. But take advantage of that to accomplish their goals. They understand that fame moves the goalpost. And then there are other people that have a lot of friends that have a lot of clout, but just don't quite feel comfortable or think it's the right path to try to take advantage of that. In, and again, not in a negative way. Where do you fall within that world? Because you obviously know a lot of people. Oh, yeah. yeah well, I, I've been friends with uh, probably about at least half a dozen celebrities that are ho household names, you know, and I, I, I'm very, very careful about ever asking them for anything because you can, you just have to imagine that 10 people are asking them every single day, you know, people yeah. make them roll their eyes and say, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Now, um, when we were uh, making the, uh, the second movie, I knew that Mike Judge was a fan of the first movie. <clears throat> So, and, and he had even said, yeah, if there's anything I can do to help, let me know. So now I'm like, okay, well, I'm not completely out of the blue to say, Hey, would you do a cameo in the movie? You know? And same exact thing with Sarah Silverman. She was a fan of the first one. In fact, the first, uh, part that I sent her was just sort of a, the bitchy stereotype that she does all the time. And, um, She's just like, I hope you understand, but I'm just kind of done doing that character and I don't really want to do it. And I was like kind of devastated, you know, but I was like, okay. But 
it's really hard for me to do, you know, to ask people for stuff like that. I, well, I try to make not something that's going to be too much of a burden. And if they're an, if they're an actor and they want and and, a, and we think it's a cool movie and we have another movie to show for it, then, you know, I don't think it's out of line to ask. Well, that's the funny thing is you're asking people to do something that they love to do anyway. You're not be, you're not asking Sarah Silverman to invest in the movie. You're not being like, hey, I saw you're famous. How about you donate a couple million dollars yeah. to this thing and we have some explosions? Um, you're not asking, you know, J.K. Simmons was a fan of the first one. You weren't asking him to donate cash. You were like, you want to be in it? And he's like, I'm a fucking actor, dude. I love acting. Yeah, I want to be in it. Like. Those guys probably said yes. I can't imagine there was a lot of hesitation from either Mike Judge. Probably because of the first one. We, Simmons, I'm sure Stanhope was on board immediately. Oh man, Stanhope was so great. Yeah, he, he was terrific. Uh, but yeah, yeah so we, really uh, we already uh, we we already had one that didn't have any famous people. No offense to all the people that are in there. <laughs> Well, Mickey Glazer and uh, Pepitone and Chris Fairbanks and there, there's a few, but um, but yeah, so we we already had a movie like that, so we were able to use that. But I I, I think that if I, I get asked things all the time by strangers, it's like um, you know, one person wanted to use my song on their TV show, and they said you you have to sign a contract that says one dollar or something like that. <laughs> you have to. Why? Why? Why am I, you have a TV show? That's what, like that's the whole thing that you know. So, but it's like there's a lot of people that are like, hey, if you don't ask, then the guys can, then you can't. But I'm not. I'm not of that philosophy. I'm like, at some point, people need to be asking you because of what you're putting out there, and that's yeah. a much more comfortable situation to be in. But yeah, I mean, I have. Uh, I'm not going to mention names, but yeah, I have a couple of friends that are that are pretty famous that uh, I sort of, you know, broached the subject and it got squashed pretty immediately. So I was just like, okay, all right. Yeah. 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 And that, and that definitely, you know, that, that definitely happens. I will tell you, I mean, I think it's great that you have a, a, a friendship with Mike judge. Like I, you know, I'm one of my top five movies, if not one of my number one movies is, is office space. I so good. I'm a huge I Mike judge fan. I think the guy's genius. Yeah. And I think it's great that people like that, you know, it, it's, it's great that you have relationships with, with them, you know, like even at your birthday party, like I saw him there and I was like, I, I wanted to just walk over and be like, dude. And I was like, Nope, leave the guy alone. Leave I think, alone. yeah, I think, I think I had a regular, like we had a conversation of like that, 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 and something about somebody else. And we were both like, like two dudes at a bar, but I was like, don't look him directly in the eye and don't talk about <laughs> Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> but he doesn't strike me as that guy either i'm sure he oh, did. He's, he was at henry's yeah. birthday party he's clearly not that yeah guy. yeah he's just a, a guy who likes to hang out like the rest of us you know yeah but With i mean, a pretty it, good it, fucking it, sense of yeah. humor obviously because yeah. you can't even you know what doesn't get enough credit and maybe it did back in the day but i don't think in as far as cartoons go king of the hill was really a top of the line cartoon man with with great characters with like kind of lessons with sort of the trying to bring open-mindedness to this area of Texas that he's from. Like there was just, yeah. I mean, oh, it's an amazing show. Yeah. yeah. And Bobby Hill is probably one of the greatest TV characters. Uh, I, I've never been a funnier little kid. Right. Oh, it's so, the show is so funny. Yeah. yeah. 
You, um, as long as we're, we're speaking on fame, I'm always interested with people that l- grew up here. Who was the first famous person that you had a, a run-in with? When uh, do you remember? Besides your parents, as, as a as a kid, you're like, oh, that's so and so. You finally that realize like the world that you live in, even though you may not have been in it. You live in that world where that's not going to happen in Wisconsin. It's not going to happen in Warrenville, Illinois. It's because of where you yeah, live. It would have been Danny DeVito when my dad was doing that one man show because I knew him from Taxi, even as a ten year old or whatever it was. And um, yeah, he was tiny, were, but I was going to say you were t- you were taller than him when you were ten. Yeah, yeah, but he's uh, but he was very charismatic. He's a good looking guy, you know. He's like he's a very charismatic dude, and um, just kind of carried himself really cool and he was he was good with kids you know and um and uh then then we did uh we went to my dad's taping of taxi oh, and shit. Went, went to uh the little hangout afterward with and that was everybody i mean andy kaufman dude so, yeah they were all there that's uh, insane yeah they andy kaufman said a quick hello and then uh took off and i think it was tony danza's dad's birthday or something so everybody had cake but it was like yeah the entire cast just hanging dude, out dude i love it of course yeah. you're a kid you're like andy kaufman and cake yeah, yeah, yeah andy kaufman said bye, and then it was somebody's birthday so we had cake which was uh, amazing but you know yeah. i mean how old were you about that at that time that was 10 that was my, that was up for this little stint yeah so, I mean, th- that's what matters to you is cake, of course. And it, and it's interesting because yeah. my kids don't – but when they were 10, it really didn't – fame, I guess, just really wasn't on their radar per se, if that makes any sense. Like they get it, yeah, but it wasn't – Well, I don't think it's as impressive when you're younger. That's why all these kids are into YouTube. It's like try selling them on Seth Rogen. You know, they, that doesn't do anything for them, you know. Um, they like to see uh, – because I think, yeah, just strangers. Well, I was just gonna say, don't don't you? Yeah, you. But as a kid, you watched Taxi because that was one of the four programs on at that time slot. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. So more of a, you knew Danny DeVito from Taxi, and it was impressive because TV was a big deal. Your parents were into it. Your grandparents were. Everyone's into it. And then you see Danny DeVito, whereas now kids are like, "What? I don't. TV is for old people." Yeah, it was interesting. That, but I I do remember literally being bored at that at that uh party afterward i was just sort of like can we go home you know just because i'm I, I wasn't excited about it as but but then when you get to be like 20 or something like that then it starts becoming more interesting when you see famous people i don't know but as a kid i think that that the power isn't i mean unless it's like somebody you idolize or something i don't i don't know but yeah. um i i do think that the power is uh is a little weaker when it comes to young children. Unless, yeah. and this is my big question, did you get to meet Ponch and John? Uh, no. Ah, see, that would have mattered, Your right? dad was never on chips? I, like a- I did actually meet uh, Eric Estrada as a 40-year-old, 42-year-old, because I, I wrote a musical uh, with my buddy that we did in town called Chips the Musical. <laughs> And we were asked to do a number from it. Um, my friend Rick Bataya, who is an amazing comedic actor, and he does a great uh, punch. And so we uh, we were asked to do a number from from it at a uh, city fundraiser. And Eric Estrada was the master of ceremonies. 
and the whole thing, like, like Rick is, uh, you know, Hispanic and American and he doesn't speak Spanish very well. And so he was kind of poking fun at the fact that Ponch never spoke Spanish. In fact, his, he called himself Poncharello, which I yeah. would have been real, you know, which is a real yeah. obvious, but, uh, but yeah, so so Rick wound up doing this whole bit at this fundraiser about that, and then Eric Estrada got up afterward, and he was defensive. It was <laughs> you know, a lot of people have brought this up. I just want to say that uh, you know, it was just like, wow, man, we're just making fun. You know, it's just show, the show that happened fucking thirty five years ago. Yeah, I don't know though, but I've often wondered with with people. You know, I see that from time to time. I mean, you have to remember though that. Being a television star in the 70s and the 80s when there was no competition, that's like you're massive. You're 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 feeling you're in this tank, this bubble of like I can't even imagine the level of fame. And television yeah. is weird because that may be it for you. It's not like a movie career where you could you could have like a 10, 15, 20 year career of being famous. Some people are famous for one show. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of their careers is guest stars, right? And it's like they're trying to recapture that feeling, that massive fame, and I it, and it affects everybody differently. And it clearly, it seems to me as an outsider, it's it, it seemed like that was one. Eric Estrada was one of those guys that was clearly affected by that. Yeah, 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 probably, and. Um... Yeah, I never met him. I met Stamos uh, because my dad was on a full house, and so that was pretty cool. He was a nice guy. And um, Your dad was on a full house. His IMDb must be insane. Um, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. So, heart to this, heart. Heart to heart. Was he, hey, was your dad ever on Rockford Files? No. Oh, that's Brian's new favorite show. I, I will I, I do remember this story that I tell repeatedly because you told it on a, another podcast, but your dad was offered the role of coach in Cheers. Yeah. And he well, didn't to to be fair, he was in the running for it and it and in hindsight it looks pretty pretty sure that he would have gotten it. Um he was going in over and over to read for the producers to be the coach. During that time, my dad got offered to play the villain in the movie Porky's 2, which would shoot in Fort Lauderdale over the summer. And he took it. It was, uh, I don't know, probably about a hundred grand in, in 1982 or whatever that was. And that pretty much took him out of the running for the Cheers thing. So now the Cheers thing was not a, a sure thing. So, I mean, what are you going to do? Like, I might get this pilot, so I'm going to turn it right. into a movie. Just one of those awful situations, but he had a pretty great career after that. In terms of, uh, he he had a couple of series that didn't run forever, but it wasn't yeah, it wasn't the gold mine that would have been. Cheers! But, I don't know. I often thought about, but like, also would I be a different person if I was one of those kids that was the son of somebody famous like that. But here's Henry the thing. Would- Sorry, can I just say one thing real quick? I think we all know how TV works, though, too. I mean, it's easy to say, I wish my, you know, like if you're a dad, I wish I wouldn't have taken Porky's, too. I wish I would have taken Coach. But he could have done the pilot, and they could have made, they could have said, you know what? He's not right. 
and they could have oh, taken yeah. out the pilot, and he never would have been a part of the success anyway. Might have not even happened if my dad sucked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a crapshoot, but I always think that your dad is still alive, whereas the guy who played coach passed away in real life, which opened the door for Woody Harrelson. I mean, Woody Harrelson's I mean, career would have been extremely different. That's right, yeah. I always think about that. Yeah, or the other thing is that um, the amount of stress that happened on on those sets back in those days in front of a live audience and rewrites all the time, and then you know that could help. Yeah that that might that might help your uh, your demise, your early (laughs) departure. Yeah, this Henry, because you have such a you have a a, such a a fresh and, and I don't want to say matter of fact, but you 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 have an understanding of how uh, how you see this this world that we live in out here. Does that come from your parents? Are they are are they satisfied ultimately when they look back on their careers and you've talked to them? I'm assuming about their careers. Are they do they have that same approach? Did you get that from them? How do they look back on their lives? Feeling that either of them um, look back with any regrets at all. Um. Yeah, I mean they were they were very lucky. They were both able to be working actors in a crazy industry and they were able to earn a living and build a life and a family and everything like that for their entire to all the way up to retirement. So, I mean that's yeah, I don't know what else you need beyond that. Yeah. That's it. That's super rare. Yeah. Yeah, I mean um there would be times when he was doing better and then there'd be times when she was doing better. And it, it was a little tougher to, we weren't, we weren't the kind of family growing up that could just go on vacation because you didn't know when the next paycheck was going to come from, you know? So yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't like somebody who works at a regular job and gets a salary and knows everything about the next 10 years of their life. This was more like, um, if we if we did really well this year, let's space it out over two years so that that way we know we're covered next year, and let's try to be frugal. You know, that was the only yeah. way they were it could happen. A couple other quick questions before we get out of here. One: How long before your brother realized he was not going to pursue the same path as you? You said early on he talked about well, I don't it. Think he was ever. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there, there there might have been a conversation here and there, but that that, that hardly ever. He he got out quick. He stayed out. Yeah, yeah, he might have taken an acting class in high school or something like that. I don't know. But uh, secondly, growing up here, um, who is the person um, that uh, you were most excited to ever meet, and all the time that you've been able to do stuff? Taking friends out of it that you become friends with. Was there ever somebody you're like, "Wow, that was really cool that I got to meet so and so"? Yeah, and I know there are, um, and you know, I did meet Paul McCartney. Um, okay. I, I hardly, I hardly call it meeting, you know, it's just somebody says, do you want to meet Paul McCartney? Like he's a Disneyland animal or something. <laughs> <laughs> he hung out and chatted or anything like that. Um, uh, was there anybody you know, that caught you off guard that walked up and started talking to you and you're like, holy shit. Okay. Well, that's because normally people don't walk. you know what I mean? That's that weird thing. Like you, I'm going to totally, uh, think of it like in an hour and I'd that's like, fine but, um i i met dennis de young from sticks one time and this is before i was even doing comedy but i was a huge sticks fan 
I'm glad I'm talking to two mid- Midwestern guys. <laughs> Dude, I just saw, uh, not the Dennis DeYoung sticks, but whatever yeah. they got going on now. Yeah, I saw him walking in Westwood, and I was a UCLA student at the time, and um, it was just like, blew me away, you know, because I was just like, since I was 10 years old, I was just, I had all their albums and everything. And I was like, Dennis DeYoung, and he, and he was so cool. He was just like a, just a guy that you'd meet in Chicago, you know, he was just like, uh, yeah, no, we're yeah. going to be doing the concert tour. So I did get to chat with him a little bit. That, that one blew me away for sure. Do you have any moments in your career, whether it's stand up or any acting or anything that you did where there was a moment where it just kind of, I have one more to that too. Oh, there you go. Okay, good. Go ahead. Do, do I hold that question? And I'll just tell you right now. Yeah, I'll hold yeah. the question. Okay. Brian Setzer. Ooh. I, Finished doing a show in uh, Minneapolis at the Acme Comedy Club, and my buddy and I went to uh, this bar called the Monte Carlo, and we were just sitting there at the bar having some beers, and uh, uh, I didn't realize it, but at one point, my buddy Chuck Bartell, who was to my right, just goes, by the way, that's the Stray Cats guy next to you, and I looked, and I'm like, oh, shit, larger than life. You know, that's Brian freaking Setzer. I love him. I mean, that guy is single-handedly revolutionized like two older forms of music and brought them right back you know it's yeah. like he's amazing and uh yeah eventually we broke the ice and he was totally cool i i i have a vague memory that he was smoking and i was smoking at the time too and so we kept going out for a cigarette i could be wrong about that it sounds weird right now but uh no. i do remember us chatting a lot and uh he was uh, he, he had just moved to Minneapolis from I think Santa Monica or something like that and uh, whoa yeah he said he was the next day he was going to be going to uh, to Iowa to go to the uh, the site where uh, Buddy Holly died and um, doing a whole tour of that stuff I mean he just he just seemed like a a real passionate guy and it, that was really that was pretty exciting wow so that, was, that was a good hang is what you're saying that was like yeah. a good hang. That was a bonus, able to go to a bar. So when you look back on your your career, whether it's stand-up or movies or television, do you remember specific moments where in the moment you're like, this is pretty awesome? Like you just all of a sudden you're like, I'm not going to forget this moment because I realized, wow, it just caught you off guard. You get that rush. Like you know something cool is happening right now. Yeah. I think that would probably be shooting the first movie. Um, I remember feeling like seeing my buddy, Matt Walker, who was playing my brother, who actually had been my roommate and just going like, we've been telling this story about having a roommate that, that had a Batman costume for so many years. And now we're finally doing it. Like we're actually acting it out. The cameras are there. The lights are on. You know, it, it, it was really something new. It was like, this is really uh, feels like I'm doing the right thing right now. And it, yeah, that was exciting all the way through. And, and you had said um, the other thing that, because I have this same thing that you do. I've always, regardless of what I've done out here, I always have to re-remind myself that this is still cool. No matter what level of success I achieve or don't achieve, I still, I still like to drive down Hollywood Boulevard. I still like to drive down Sunset. I still like to look at the Hollywood sign. I still think it's cool that I can look out my window and see a palm tree. I yeah. still think it's amazing. There's mountains. Like I, I always remind myself that legal I, weed. I, I, 
I like, I, yeah, I like where I'm at and I'm glad that I'm here and I never want to not, I, I never, I never want to get to the point where that stuff doesn't matter to me. Does that still kind of how you roll? You still look at things that way? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you got to keep on reminding yourself of everything that you have because, um, yeah, it can get really, uh, especially when you get older, you're sort of like, wow, it, you start really realizing how much of a, uh, a young market this whole thing is because you start looking at all these new uh, social media things. I'm just like, I don't even know what half of these things are, and I don't really want to learn about them. <laughs> that's the that's the frustration is like, dude, I don't want to be on Twitch. Get away from me. I know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And my last question is because you grew up in the mall era, did you ever own a pair of parachute pants? Um, yeah, well, I, it <laughs> the time. I, I had cargo pants, I think he called. They had a lot of like pockets in them and stuff like that. Okay. So you never a zipper guy. You didn't have shirts and pants with lots of zippers on them. Oh man. I, I had a lot worse though. I had, there was this baggy craze thing that was happening and I have pictures that are extremely embarrassing. Like I, some friends of mine were like, you know, you got to go melrose to get your clothes that's the place to go and i i went to melrose and just bought clothes and i came out looking like some kind of clown or something like that like baggy pants and big pants <laughs> it was trendy though for a while to have bigger clothes yeah it was, it was a little like miami vice but it like shoulder pads like why is it so big it's fucking weird oh yeah and i had the full-on mullet and uh you uh, had, okay, I've so, seen some so high school pictures of you. You had glorious, glorious hair. So, yeah. So, you did sell coke. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I was definitely all in on the hair thing. And uh, the, uh, what were some of the other classic? Like, there's the band Ice House. Yes. Did you have that hairdo? Yeah, the singer for that. Like I had I had his exact look for a second. Yeah, it was just like, you gotta be crazy, baby. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you gotta be crazy, all right. <laughs> that's yeah, a barber. Crazy. That's a barber singing to that guy. You gotta yeah. be crazy. Dude, thank you for, so much for sharing your journey. That was oh, amazing. dude, Henry, yeah, yeah, dude. Yeah, no, this is fun, man. Um, absolutely. You're easily one of my favorite people in the entertainment industry as a whole. Um, and in life, dude, I, you're super funny. Your movies are great. Henry's kitchen. Well, if you haven't seen it, out there and hang out again. Dude, yeah. Yeah. Watch Henry's kitchen on YouTube. Check out highway man. That'll be more episodes of that coming out. Um, and then you shot a special. I know it didn't get, um, yeah, uh, that's on Amazon. Uh, Amazon. Amazon. You can watch it. It's called Neither Here Nor There, and uh, I'm very happy with that. I'm, dude, I love that. That's the one that I opened up for you. Oh yeah, yeah, dude. That was a it's very <laughs> yeah. well done. The comedy is obviously the most important thing. Is the is superior, and then it looks great. It's shot in a great area. You know, I, yeah. that was just a, that was a good show. So check that out on yeah. Amazon if you can. No regrets there. I feel very good about that. And I'm glad. And, and I still get emails from people saying, hey, man, I just watched it, which I'm glad about because, you know, shit dates so fast nowadays, you know. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I, I, I'm really happy with that special. And um, but uh, but yeah, so Patreon slash Highwayman show. 
is how you get to that. And you can see the uh, the whole intro video that it explains the whole thing and a couple of things I've already shot. But uh, I'm definitely uh, anxious to get that going. Yeah, and uh, we'll post a link to that when we when we put oh, this cool. up. Thanks. Yeah, man. Thanks, Thank you. Guys. All right. Thanks, Henry. Can't wait till we can all hang out in person one day. Someday, Someday. man. Someday. All right, guys. Uh, that's it, Brian. You got anything else? Nope. Oh, thanks for listening. See you guys. Thank you for listening to Hollywood Anonymous. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Hollywood Anani. That is short for Hollywood Anonymous. You can also follow John individually at John Huck and myself, Brian Irwin, at Brian Irwin on Twitter as well. Both of us can be found on Facebook. You can also Google us and contact us directly, HollywoodAnonymousGuys at gmail.com. Thank you again so much for listening, and please don't forget to subscribe. 